Hi, everybody, and welcome to WChat. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Aisha Mays regarding her work with teens, especially at-risk teens. We will also be recording another podcast with Dr. Mays regarding her work with traffic teens and women in the near future, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss that episode as well. Also, if you love this episode and the work we're doing, please leave us a rating on iTunes or go to our website or Patreon page and help us keep the show going at www.womancenteredhealth.com. And I just want to say one more thing before we get started. We really especially want to thank Dr. Aisha Mays for her patience with us. We tried recording this previously and had some issues, so we're so thankful for her understanding and her patience with us, and we're looking forward to starting a new and fresh podcast with her today. (laughs) Thank you. And it was really good, the one that we recorded. (laughs) So hopefully this one will just be even better. So yes, thank you, Dr. Mays, for joining us again. So to give our listeners a little background about the people you're speaking with, we would like you to talk a little bit about yourself. So could you tell our listeners about your background, like your education and your training and your current practice setting, like where you practice and the type of patients you serve? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to start off by saying thank you to you all, Nicole and Stephanie, for having me on your podcast. And we had a a good time with our first run. And so I'm happy to be back here now. But I just really thank you all for creating this media forum for women to talk about sexual and reproductive health, especially with the events in our recent nation. It's just a reminder how important it really is to discuss women's health and women's empowerment. So thank you for creating the space to do that. Thank you. So a little bit about me. I am a family physician, but I focus my practice solely on adolescent medicine. I've been practicing family medicine, adolescent medicine for about 10 years in Oakland, California. I am from the Bay Area, sort of split my time. I moved to the Bay Area when I was 13 from Missouri. And I completed my medical training at Case Western. And after that, I decided to pursue family medicine and did my family medicine training in New York at Montefiore. It's actually a, a pretty unique program. It's a residency program for family medicine and social medicine. So really looking at the intersections between social influences of health, culture, race, ethnicity, class, and how that really affects how patients receive medical care, how they experience a medical system. And so that was a really great experience. And it's, it's really interesting because people ask me, actually, someone just asked me over the weekend, you're a family doctor, but you just take care of teenagers. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> I always say that they really chose me. I think that I've always been interested in working with young people and like young people in general. And I had an experience when I was a second year medical student mentoring an 11th grade student. And she had an experience where she became pregnant during her junior year of high school. And so working with her and helping her traverse the medical system as a young person who really needs access to medical care and and social services was pretty influential for me. And then I started having more young people, teenagers showing up in my clinic when uh, I was a resident and really just became really fascinated with working with them. So that's how it happened. And I've been doing it ever since. And um, now I am back in the Bay Area and all of my medical practice has been around adolescence. I work specifically with vulnerable youth, so youth who have challenges around either 
accessing social systems or and, and how that really affects their health. I in last October, I opened a clinic in our youth homeless shelter to really help to serve that population of youth, young people in downtown, and also young people who have been affected by um, sexual exploitation, which like you said, we'll talk more about on another podcast. Awesome. So you spoke a little bit about this, but just to get a little bit more in depth, we also like to ask our guests what informs your perspective or your practice. So why do you do what you do and what's most valuable to you? Yeah, yeah, I I like this question and I don't want to sound cliche or like I'm singing the verse of a, a song, but I do feel like young people are really our future. I really love working with youth because I feel like they are really a, a point in their lives where they are being challenged by independence and they're really seeking independence and they also want guidance in that independence, even though it seems like they don't. And so I feel like it really is a pivotal moment to really affect and be a positive influence in a person's life and around their health. And they are really the drivers of what happens in our country, in our world, in our our next generation. And so that really inspires me, just working with young people and and seeing how open they are to, to change and to influence. So my philosophy in my practice and in our clinic is really to be truly youth-informed, youth-engaged, and youth-led. really believe in providing clinical care that really directly reflects the needs of our youth. Down to, I, I just have an example of that. The young people actually named our clinic. <laughs> we were open for about a month before we even had an official name because we really wanted it to reflect what attracts youth. And for young people to know that this is their space. I really believe that we should integrate health in a deeper way so that young people know that that health can be a part of pop culture. It's not something that should be in a silo. It really is all one. Youth health shows up in young people's lives everywhere from them skateboarding in skate parks to dancing with friends to talking about relationships. It really is all health. And so one of my uh, philosophies and something I'm really trying to bring to our clinic is this integration of health and pop culture. And it really is all one and, and having young people engage in health in that way. I think that is so neat, especially that you had a clinic that went unnamed for an entire month just so that you can have your patients or the teens name it. I just think that's neat. Oh, yeah, they chose that. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, it was uncomfortable for a month to have a clinic that didn't really have a name. I mean, luckily, we were in <laughs> we were in the Dreamcatcher youth space. And so we just called ourselves the Dreamcatcher Clinic. But we always said our name is coming. And we really had to hold space for that discomfort while we um, engaged young people and said, you know, this is your space. So we want you to you to name it. And they chose a great name that I don't know that I would have thought of the Dream Youth Clinic. It really is all encompassing that you can do whatever, whatever you dream, whatever you conceive can be yours. And that's our overall philosophy. And that's something that they really embraced and chose. And so it's, it's really perfect. Great. So like we said, today we're going to discuss working with teens. So let's jump right in. And our first question, you kind of touched on this a little bit too, but you and your peers have called you the quote unquote teen doc. Can you explain to our listeners why you are the teen doc and in also include any advocacy work that you do for teens? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I would start by reframing the language that 
we use to talk about young people. The studies have shown there was a study done by Advocates for Youth where they talked to young people and asked them, what do they like to be called? How do they like to be referred? And what are some terms that resonate with them? And the term, one of the terms that resonated the least was teenager. <laughs> I mean, again, that's also a term that I have used, but it's something that they just felt like seemed to be too paternalistic and didn't take into effect their maturity. They were much more comfortable with young person, youth, and, and that language. And so I've been trying to move away from, from using teen. I do use teen doc, however, in, in my, my online and social media presence because it is catchy. It is uh, a term that most of us are familiar with. And I, I try to use social media to really bridge health and pop culture. I always talk to young people about health being everything. Health is not just when you show up to your medical appointment or when you have to have an uncomfortable conversation with your parents or with your doctor, but health is when you are riding your skateboard down the street or when you are going for a bike ride with friends or when you're dancing on the weekend, it's all health. And so for me, using that handle Teen Doc helps to be a reminder of the bridge between pop culture and health for youth. You also mentioned about advocacy work, some of the the things I've been doing for advocacy. And I think that my entire reason for my practice and my practice every day is really an act of advocacy. And I really try and go into my clinical encounters and in my clinic with a mindset of really showing up for you and what they need. And so I don't only focus on their medical issues. Uh, we In adolescent medicine, we spend a lot of time talking about what we call psychosocial concerns. So things that are happening at home, things are happening with friends, other relationships. And I'm really trying to to delve into that and be an advocate for uh, my patients however I can. And also using our clinic and our system to help to advocate for young people. A very specific portion of my advocacy work that I've done over the past eight years or so is really working with young people who have been involved with and affected by commercial sexual exploitation or sex trafficking. Um, Again, we'll talk more about that in another recording, but it has become a growing issue in the United States and is certainly a significant issue in the Bay Area. I take care of young people who are affected by and involved with sex trafficking on a daily basis. And I've been doing a lot of work nationally and locally around advocacy and research in that area. So when just talking about terms and you like to use the the terms young person or youth rather than teen, I was at a conference this weekend and some, a nurse who works with adolescents used this term AYA for adolescent and young adults. And I had just never heard that term AYA before. Is that a term that you use? So yes, that is a term that I use, AYA, for adolescents and young adults. And it's not a term that I use directly with youth or with young people because it is more academic and it's, I would assume that it's not something that they would necessarily connect with. But I do think that term is very important with the clinical community and the academic community because it pairs adolescents and young people into the same category because they really are. You know, we used to think about adolescents previously as going until age 18 or age 21, but certainly more so age 18. And then once a person turns 19, then they're an adult. <laughs> but we do we do know with the adolescent developing brain and adolescent maturity, the adolescence really does extend until the young adult years, until about age 24. 
And so that's our young adult population. And language is very important because with that language, we're then able to advocate for more services for our young adult population because we know that they have very similar needs as our adolescent 18 and under population. Interesting. I haven't heard the term AYA either. So what makes providing sexual and reproductive care to teens or adolescents so unique or different from providing care to adult women or patients? So what I found is providing sexual and reproductive health care to adolescents is it's really fun, (laughs) number one, because you get to have conversations with young people about maturity and their concept of maturity and really be able to engage with them and to hear what are the things that are exciting them about maturity? What are things that are making them scared? What are things that they know or have questions about? Or what are some things that they know, but maybe aren't necessarily accurate? And so being able to have those conversations and to really be influential in a and the health of a young person is very important. The other thing is, you know, adolescence is is really a time of independence. And I think that independence can make lots of parents scared, but in the same way that the terrible twos or two-year-olds is a time when they're exploring adolescence is another time of exploration and independence. And it's also a time where it's really important for young people to have positive adult influences to help them make those decisions, not to make the decisions for them, but to help them make that. And that's what I like most about having those conversations. Stephanie, I'll let you ask the next one. Okay. So, um, so talking about decision-making and helping, um, you, you said that help, you know, adults helping make adolescents make decisions rather than making the decisions for them. So, um, that kind of brings up empowerment. So how do you empower adolescents in your practice when it comes to sexual and reproductive health decision-making? Yeah, I like, I like empowerment. I like having conversations about empowerment and the conversations about agency. And I always tell young people, I cannot empower you and I cannot give you agency. That is something that we uh, as individuals always have. Uh, it's never taken away from us. We always have it. And um, no, th- and so no one can give it to us. We have it already. What I can do is I can support you. And so I'm really here to support you in your empowerment and support you in, in your agency, support you in realizing your agency. Uh, and, and I think that having that level of discussion is also empowering for a young person, for them to realize that they already have everything they need. I had a really great conversation with a young person a few weeks ago in clinic about about empowerment and about agency and and about the losing virginity. I was talking about the first time um, having sex for the first time, and um, there was a little bit of regret there, uh, and and with her feeling like she had given up something. I just gave it away, and I said, "No, you have everything. You didn't give everything away. You shared. You decided." and you shared yourself. And so you still have everything. You haven't lost anything. And so I, and, and it was, uh, I think it was surprising for her. And she said to me, Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Like, no, you decide, we decide and you haven't lost anything and you always have, and, and that is empowering. So even with decisions, you can remember that you still have empowerment and you still have agency. 
So I'm just going to ask kind of the flip of that. So you talk about the teens or the adolescents that, you know, everyone inherently has agency and empowerment. And in what ways do you think that providers can sometimes take that away from adolescents, take away empowerment or take away agency? Oh, I love that question. (laughs) Because I think that um, as providers, we may do this unintentionally. I think that um, most healthcare providers, we go into healthcare because we want to help people and we want people to lead their best and and most successful lives. Um, And in doing that, sometimes as healthcare providers, we become overzealous and we start to make decisions for our patients or we start to judge our patients. uh, And young people in particular um, can always feel that and they always see that. And I think that um, with working with young people for so many years and also having conversations with adults about young people, um, we, as adults, we tend, we can tend to, uh, want to make the choice for a young person. For instance, if we know that there is, might be a young person who, um, might be doing something to cause a pregnancy and maybe they don't want to become pregnant and we want to just make a choice for them or tell them this is what you should be doing as opposed to having a conversation with the young person about their choices. Uh, and I think that that is um, something that, that can be very detrimental on behalf of the medical community um, with judgment and making choices for, for youth. And do you have any other tips for providers so that they too can support the empowerment of their patients? Yeah, I would say be open, really be open and sit and have a conversation with that young person. And um, don't be so quick to provide an answer. So in the same way that when we are struggling with um, decisions and just struggling with struggling with what we think is right. We sometimes want to just talk about it and to work it through. And that is what is happening in adolescence. That is what, that's what's normal in adolescence. That's the independence that, that is the bridge between childhood and adulthood that we call adolescence. So it's all about being coming independent and learning to have those critical and independent um, thought processes and independent conversations. Um, that's the best thing that we can do for a young person. Um, the worst thing that we can do is decide for them because number one, it won't, it won't be their decision. They're, they will do what they will decide to do anyway. And we wouldn't have had the opportunity to really talk it through with them. Um, and number two, it, we may lose that moment and lose the rapport with the young person so that when something else comes up, um, they will be like less likely to come back to see us as a provider. Stephanie, I'll let so, you yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, so you say you, your, your tips are to be open and, and sit back and listen and try not to, um, sort of make this decision for the, for the adolescent. But sometimes you may come across a young adult or adolescent who maybe in your clinical judgment isn't making the 
best decision. So how do you balance empowering that young person um, to make their own decisions with your own clinical judgment? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, um, in my work, I've talked to providers who maybe this this teen wants to become pregnant and not the best of circumstances. Um, so how would you how would you handle that situation? Yeah, I like this question, too, because it often comes up. Um, anyone who's taking care of youth, they will be challenged um, by with this um, scenario, whether it's this specific scenario or something like it. Um, and I always lead with conversations with adolescents and by telling them, this is your choice. And I think just opening with this is your choice really helps to level the playing field in the room. Um, again, this is a young person who for the entire their entire life, they have been under the direction of, of an adult, whether it's a parent or guardian, um, someone that they have um, who's helped to care for them um, and not been empowered or not been allowed um, likely to to make their choices in um, in the way that they begin to make them in adolescence. And so I think it's really important to um, remind young people that, I'm here to help you to make your choice. And this is your choice. And so in the scenario with a young person who might be either wanting to become pregnant or might be engaging in um, behaviors that will likely lead to pregnancy and, and, but saying that they don't really want to become pregnant. Again, I take a step back um, and talk it through with them. And so there are there are some some techniques that you can do around um, when there is behavior that doesn't necessarily match either what the person is saying uh, or or they're or, or they're blatantly saying something opposite. But the hate behavior is different. And so you can do things like paraphrasing. So where you're you're the young person is saying to you um, what they're saying to you and you say, well, it's, this is what it sounds like to me. And is that right? And sometimes it takes uh, the young person hearing what they're saying to say, oh, well, no, no, I didn't mean that. Or I don't, I don't want to become pregnant now. Or, well, just because I'm not using condoms doesn't mean I want to become pregnant. And so you're, so you're trying to sort of reframe it so that they are able to actually hear their voice. And again, reminding them that this is their voice. Uh, and then sometimes we still have a young person who might really be adamant about becoming pregnant. And um, for me as a provider, to, for me, it may seem like they're not ready, but may, I should explore that and really talk to them about that and ask them, what are the motivations behind that? Because usually you can get to um, really the heart of where that desire lies. Does, it, does that desire really lie in pregnancy or does it lie in wanting connection or does it lie in wanting stability? Because for some young people, pregnancy does mean stability or feels like stability. Uh, and so really trying to get to the heart of the matter. Uh, and then again, re, uh, speaking back to them and saying, this is what it sounds like you're saying, and then making a plan. But again, always coming back to this is your choice. I'm here to support you um, while you're giving your medical information and medical knowledge. But again, 
this it's their choice at the end of the day. Um, and just to sort of um, add to this, because so my uh, my dissertation was in reproductive life planning, not specific to young adults, but obviously, um, though that's sort of where those some of those thoughts begin. Um, and one of the big parts of reproductive life planning is talking about goals, and you know, in this in this phase of adolescence is when we start really creating our goals of how we want our life to look like. Is that something that you talk with your patients about and how do you do that? Absolutely. I talk to about to my patients about goals. Almost all of my patients, I try and talk to, th- to them about it on the first visit. If we don't get to it on the first visit, certainly on the second visit. <laughs> but at, at some point in our um, early um, time of getting to know each other, I always talk about goals. And I think um, goals are important for many reasons. Um, in adolescent medicine, uh, we talk, uh, we have something called the HEADS assessment, which is our psychosocial assessment, looking at home life, education, activities, uh, substances, relationships, mental health. And so it kind of goes through these categories. And one of the, uh, a few of the categories specifically talks about goals. So where, where are their goals for their education? What are their goals for after they finish their formal education? What are their goals in the next year? Where, where do they see themselves or what would they like to be doing next, this time next year? And, and so that that young person can really start to think about what their life is going to be like. And I think it's so important to talk about goals because when it, it also helps when there are sometimes these disparate uh, ac- actions that are happening. So going back to the patient who might want wanting to become pregnant, um, but maybe that patient three weeks ago or the first time you met the patient said that they were really interested in going to college next year. And so you can really talk about how does the goal, how does your goal for going to college next year, how does that um how would becoming pregnant, how do you think that would affect that? And it doesn't mean that you're, you're saying that they shouldn't become pregnant and that you're saying that um, something would happen negatively rather than going to college, but you're just trying to make those connections for them and starting to have them think about this immediate um, desire and how that plays into, um, into their overall life plans. And are, do you find that adolescents are able to easily or readily articulate what their future goals are? I think that they are if it's posed in the right way. So we know that there are also stages of adolescence. There are um, early stage, middle stage, and late stage. And that is an uh, oversimplification (laughs) of the stages. Um, But just again, a more simplistic uh, view is really thinking about sort of early stage adolescents being more concrete thinkers. And then the later stage adolescents, you can have being more abstract and being able to grasp abstract concepts. Uh, and, and so I, I, so I, yes, number one, I do think that young people are able to talk about goals and, um, and most have goals. Um, and it, I think we'd be surprised how many people actually haven't asked some people what some young people, what their goals are. Uh, if I ask a young person after you, what do you, what do you think you'd want to do after high school? And they tell me, well, that's a goal. 
I don't have to pose it saying, well, what are your goals for the next year? Because that might be too abstract for them. But being really concrete, what are you? What would you like to do next year? Um, have you ever worked? What do you think you'd like to do for work? That's, that's a goal. And so really helping, again, our, our job as adults and as adult uh, uh, healthcare providers is really helping to draw out um, the, the desires and the goals um, for young people, because that is part, that is adolescent health. Most young people are, are very healthy um, and where, where things can, um, I don't want to say this, I'm going to back up a little bit. <laughs> So most young people are healthy uh, and the areas where they need more guidance and direction are on the psychosocial goals and um, the psychosocial um, contributors to their lives. Do you find that adolescents have an easier, difficult time connecting their goals to then how their sexual and reproductive selves in, would influence or impact their goals? I think some can, definitely. Again, thinking about uh, where a young person is along that stage of adolescence, if they're a more concrete thinker and not really making those connections, or if they're more an abstract thinker and can make those connections. But then we also know that there can be influences um, and events that happen in young people's lives that can skew how they uh, perceive their sexual health, like trauma, traumatic events, um, being either ex- being exposed to trauma, uh, being involved in trauma, um, specifically sexual trauma. So either having experienced sexual abuse or witnessing um, domestic abuse, um, uh, homelessness, unstable housing, uh, even parents um, not being... T- uh, parent, having parental dysfunction and really parental discord in the home, all of those things can affect the way a young person um, sees themselves. We talk talking about empowerment and agency and also how they project to the world. And part of that is around sexual health and uh, how they view their sexuality and how they, how they think other people should receive and view and honor their sexuality. And so, again, that's also what um, we can do as adolescent providers, young people, any providers who are taking care of young people. um, We are mostly having these conversations around um, healthy sexuality, healthy um, sexual relationships and sexual empowerment, um, because we often don't know all of uh, the the story and the history um, that some of our, our young people are coming with and really is up to us to, again, have those conversations to try and um, reframe uh, some some of the things that uh, may have happened or that they just don't know about yet. Well, and the reason I ask those questions is like Stephanie, whose research was um, also talked a lot about goals. So did mine and mine was with rural women. And one of the things I found interesting was that rural women in comparison to women who were in college or rural dwelling, I should say. So they were living in a rural area versus women in college living in um, at school the role of goals was really interesting in that rural women had a harder time articulating their goals and then had a hard time articulating how their goals 
or how their sexual and reproductive selves were linked or would impact their goals. So that's why I was wondering how teens manage that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it, I think it definitely depends. I think it also depends how things are posed. Okay. I think that um, if, I mean, again, man, working with teens, you often have to say things, you might have to say the same, talk about the same concept in five different ways in order for, the young person to, to either understand what you're saying or for it to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that likely happens with some adults as well, that again, language really matters and how things are posed matter. Um, and a young person may not think um, what they do six months after high school is a goal, but it is. And so just trying to, to, to meet people where they are, um, around sort of language and how they frame issues as well. Oh, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I like that. So, Stephanie, I have one question circling back to like potential discomfort. But before I like circle back and get off, that, yeah, I was going to ask. Do you that. have okay. anything related to what she uh-huh. just said? Okay. Do you no. want to ask that question then? No, go ahead. Or do you want me to? Sure. Okay. No, I can't. So kind of just uh, to take a step back with the example that we posed, you know, having a patient maybe who is young and wants to get pregnant and is not in the best situation or, you know, any other type of sort of um, difficult situation that you might encounter. How do you manage the possible discomfort or feelings of conflict that come from these situations when you disagree personally with your one of your patients decision yeah this this has come up for me a lot (laughs) in uh in my practice and um when i um began practicing i didn't really i didn't know how to reconcile this uh and i went for the more directive approach (laughs) where i would Tell patients, this is what I think you should be doing. Or if you do this, then this is what will happen. Um, and I realized I did that because that made me feel better. It made me feel like I was doing um, the right thing by that patient as their doctor. I'm telling them what is um, best for my medical knowledge. And through the years with um more training around uh, patient-centered care, around shared decision-making, around uh, patient empowerment, around youth agency, and how it that is what we're here to do as medical providers. Uh, I have had to uh, relearn and that what what my approach is going to be. And so my now my approach now for years has been for me to leave my judgments. And to leave my um, hopes for an outcome outside the exam room. When I walk into the exam room, I'm there to be a facilitator for my patient. I'm there to um, help them to make the decision that's best for them. But it's always their choice. And so even if their choice doesn't align with what I feel medically is um, safe, 
or necessary or recommended um, within some parameters. Again, we're talking about adolescents and just with people making sure that people are, are remain safe and are not a danger to themselves or a danger to other people. Um, but aside from those, those caveats, uh, I really have to take a step back and remember that this, this is an independent person and they are allowed to make their own choices. Uh, and so when I have patients who are choosing something that doesn't seem to be in line with what, with what they've told me they want, or, um, seems to be a decision that may have longer term negative uh, consequences. What I tell them is what I, what we know from people who choose, who make these choices, these are some of the things that can happen. So they're informed. It's for me to provide information and also to remind them that again, this is your choice, but these are some of the things that can happen. How would you, how would, how would you feel if any, if some of these things happen, what would you do if this were to happen? And so again, trying to, again, troubleshoot some of the even potential risks that are associated with decisions. But again, it's not for me to, um, to walk in with um, the outcome and being, being connected to the outcome. That was interesting. The podcast we recorded actually earlier today, uh, they too talked about how the need to kind of check your bias and check your judgment at the door. And, and like you said, mm-hmm. it, uh, to provide patient-centered care really means to leave that at the door and that you're there to facilitate care. Absolutely. And it's, and it's very um, contrary to what most of us have learned in medical education, <laughs> medical education, nursing education. Um, it's, it can be very contrary. We, we come in and we know that we have, here are the symptoms, here's the diagnosis, and here's the treatment. And if people, patients don't follow those timelines, then they are either non-compliant or they're um, difficult. Uh, and so they, they, they get labeled. Um, but it's really kind of taking a step back and realizing that everyone has the right to make their choices. And that's also with adolescents. They have the right to make their choices. I'm not here to make choices for them. I'm here to provide information, um, to provide more counseling if that's what they would like. Uh, and then also to remind them that I'm here to support. And even if they decide or realize that, Two months later, that wasn't a good choice, and they regret, have some regret from that. I'm still here to take care of them. I'm not, I'm not wedded to the outcome. The outcome of their decisions um, don't have any um, weight in whether I will see them in my practice. Great. Stephanie, awesome. you want to ask yeah. the next one about <clears throat> risk? Get into risk. Yeah, sure. So um, we previously spoke with Dr. Carrie Pierce, and she talked about how rural women perceive risk related to pregnancy and STIs differently than urban women. And um, in what way do you see differences in the way that adolescents and young adults perceive risk? Hmm. Yeah, I like this question about risk, um, especially risk risk with adolescents, um, because risk in adole- in adolescence 
is a very um, common and normal part of adolescent development. Um, and I use the word normal lightly. I don't like the word normal, <laughs> but it is, it's a very common and expected part of adolescent development. Um, adolescents are supposed to try new things and try different things. That's, that is how they decide what, what they like, what they don't like, what's good for them, what's not good for them. Um, and that's a part of making decisions in adulthood, um, knowing how to do that. Uh, I, I, so I talk to my patients about risk, um, because again, in talking about that, that psychosocial heads assessment, we talk about, um, some behaviors that involve risk like substances. Uh, and often when we talk about substances like marijuana use or any kind of other drug use or drinking alcohol or cigarettes or, and things that young people feel like they shouldn't be doing or shouldn't be telling an adult, I usually get like a, like a strange look before they answer. And, um, and it makes me think that there's a little bit of, um, like shame, like not wanting to talk about that. And so again, I always kind of level it out and say, everything is private here. And, um, and I'm not going to discuss what you say to me about with anyone else. Just making sure that they know that. Um, and also letting them know that, um, trying new things is a part of their development for where they are in, at their age and in their lives. Um, but uh, it's also really important um, to listen to that inner voice. So it's not necessary to try everything. If your inner voice, your intuition is telling you that this might not be the best thing, or maybe you don't want to do that, it's important to listen to that. And so the, the, that's also a part of independence and that's also a part of adulthood. It's not just about trying everything because other people are doing it. Um, you have to feel like this is something um, that would be safe for you, that feels okay for you, um, that feels healthy for you, even better than okay, healthy for you. Uh, and if your inner voice is telling you that something is not right, then um, something is not right. And so, and, and so again, having, having a, a broader conversation about decision-making, including risk and not just focusing on sort of risk behaviors with young people. Have you noticed, so one thing that Dr. Carrie Pierce talked about was that how women had a look, they appeared, and I found this in my research too, is that they appeared to have a very low perceived risk of getting pregnant or contracting an STI and kind of generally speaking in your practice, how do teens perceive risk of pregnancy or STIs? Yeah, I, I have found that they perceive them differently. So meaning perceiving risk of pregnancy differently from perceiving the risk of STIs. Um, most of my young people who are uh, who come in requesting birth control methods or who are open to, to having discussion on birth control methods okay. Um, uh, or using condoms for their birth control method uh, is because they don't want to become pregnant. Um, so if we just use condoms as an example, so if condoms being like the being the method of choice, um, it's mainly I found my patients are using that for pregnancy prevention, not so much for STI prevention. They understand that it also prevents STIs, and they all know that condoms 
prevent STIs. If you walk around on the street and you ask any teenager, how do you prevent an STI? They know it's condoms, whether they use it or not. Um, I think that there is, I found in my practice, lower perceived risk around uh, STI acquisition um, than pregnancy acquisition from a, a broken condom and not being on a birth control method. And, um, and I think that's probably for a few reasons. I think that um, we know the number one STI for young people is chlamydia. Chlamydia, more than half of the time, has no symptoms. So the young person is not going to feel sick. Um, and most of the time we contract, we find chlamydia on um, generalized screening. So I think the fact that the most common STI, some of the most common STIs have no symptoms um, and then there also are good treatments for the most common STIs for young people as well, um, can also decrease their perceived risk. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We want to have treatments and we want young people to be taken care of. Um, but it's different for pregnancy. Uh, often I've found in my practice that um, girls perceive a real risk of pregnancy, whether they're using a method or not. Um, is uh, it is can be different. It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't think it's a risk. And also, we also know from um, some new research that's coming out of Answer, one of my um, research colleagues, Dr. Antonia Biggs, uh, that withdrawal is also a um, a perceived um, highly effective method that young people are using for pregnancy prevention. And so if we are talking to young people about uh, pregnancy prevention and we're not mentioning withdrawal, <laughs> we, um, and, but they say they're using a method, but they mean withdrawal and we haven't mentioned withdrawal, then again, we're, we're also missing a moment to um, have a, a clear conversation about um, real pregnancy um, risk. It's interesting that you mentioned condoms being used more so as pregnancy prevention because I found too in my research that when college women were asked about birth control options, if they used birth, both like a hormonal contraceptive pill and a condom, it was not necessarily to protect against both pregnancy and STIs. It was to be doubly sure that they would not get pregnant. Exactly. That's exactly what I mean. Yes. Well, <laughs> and that's exactly what I see in my it's, practice. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie, you want to take a question? I was trying to decide if, oh, I guess I don't, did we, did we get to the incorrectly mm. question? No, I don't think, I, I don't think per, per se. se. <laughs> no, I don't know. Incorrectly? Oh, about the, okay. I can, you want to say it again? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to, do you want yeah. me to ask that one? How do you, like the where adults what do you do? might perceive risk incorrectly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Okay, and I even have examples from this in practice. So, um, sometimes every all patients may do this, not just adolescents, but adolescents um, might sort of be trying to understand risk. Um, in general, and may kind of have a incorrect grasp of of the perceived risk of a behavior. Um, for example, 
I often in my practice would have young adults or adolescents not want to use hormonal birth control um, because it gives it might give them a blood clot and um you know talking to them sort of about how the risk of a blood clot of birth control is lower than a risk of blood clot if you become pregnant um so how do you address situations where your adolescents are perceiving risk quote unquote incorrectly mm-hmm. yeah and i think that this can be um difficult and confusing for for lots of patients um so i always like to start off by normalizing um normalizing conversations so that a young person doesn't think that I think they may not be intelligent enough to, to grasp what we're we're talking about or when I reframe it. um, So they don't feel like I, I have any judgment about their intelligence. Um, I'd like to give very small and uh, and concrete uh, examples about risk. So I can use the condoms as an example because I have um, lots of patients who use condoms as their primary birth control method. And so I say, they say, you know, I'm using condoms for birth control and I'm, I'm happy with condoms. And I don't, I know that I don't want, don't want to be become pregnant. And I always say, that's so great that you're using condoms because condoms are the only birth control method. They will also protect you against STDs. And so validating that. And I said, and we know that oftentimes uh, young people who are using condoms as their only birth control method can have a higher risk of becoming pregnant. And so what I mean by that, if I were to put 10 girls in a room right now and they were all using condoms, uh, three of those girls will become pregnant using condoms. And so trying to give them something that is really concrete that you can visualize and like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, and and say, but let's say we're we would... Let's um, compare this against the, the contraceptive ring. If we were to put 10 girls in a room and they're all using the contraceptive ring, I would give them and I would tell them sort of what that, what that would mean. So they, so they can see what the differences are. And there's actually some really great um, uh, health education tools uh, that for, for all women, but, they're, but adolescents I found have really loved them. Um, the bedsider posters that show the contraceptive methods um, by level of efficacy. And, it, and on the right uh, chart panel, it shows what the pregnancy risk is by number of women. So you can actually see the women who become the risk of women becoming pregnant um, in, on that panel. Uh, and I've used that as well. We have those posted in my clinic. And I've used that to talk to young people about their risk. Um, because sometimes uh, adolescents think when they're using a method that they are all the same. And they can be all effective if they're used correctly. Um, and uh, again, when we're talking about condoms, if a condom breaks, then that's not correct use. And so to really talk about what correct use is. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so then <clears throat> I, I know I, I kind of see it. I was trying to think 
think about this or the reproductive say, I feel life like thing already, question. I feel like, yeah, I think kind of maybe, maybe we kind of covered these other ones. Yeah. You want to move on to maybe the next one? <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. You sure. Go ahead. So you had previously discussed that you have a lot of experience working with vulnerable or high-risk adolescents, like adolescents in juvenile facilities. How does your communication change or how do your approaches change when you talk with a t- an adolescent that you know is more at risk or more vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, um, I also, I really appreciate this question as well. Um, because we, uh, I, I, I feel like, I don't know, over the past three years or so, just in my practice, um, there has been more language around young people who experience more vulnerabilities in their lives and um, care for young people and what's important um, in terms of providing medical services for young people who uh, have experienced um, high vulnerabilities. Uh, for me, really, no matter who I'm working with, um, whether they're vulnerable youth or not vulnerable youth. And I think it's, it's, we never can tell um, because what may look vulnerable on the outside um, may, there may be vulnerabilities deep within that just have not come out. So I think number one, it's really important that we, in, in the spirit of trauma-informed care, that we um, go into every medical encounter, no matter um, the um, social history or the perceived sort of demographics of that patient um, with um, the same, the same, <laughs> I'm losing my train of thought, <laughs> priority. That's what say. <laughs> Sorry, with the same priority to be a facilitator and to provide the best care for the patient. Um, I had an experience where I was working in a school-based health center a few years ago and uh, I was toward the end of the school year and a patient came to see me and she was so excited because she had just gotten accepted to an Ivy league school on the East coast. And um, she was going to be moving away in a few months and she had done really well in school and had all these um, senior activities coming up and was just really excited. And I was really excited for her. I can just feel her excitement. And um, she was coming in for a refill of her new ring. And as we're going through, and I, I hadn't seen her in a while, and so I wanted to go through and ask her again, sort of check in with her on the HEADS assessment and see how things are going at home and, and all of that. And, um, and I asked her, about um, previous hospitalizations. And she says, does psychiatry count? And it was just, uh, it really took me aback because um, this is a young person who seemed to uh, have no, what we perceive to be problems. Um, She was going to be going off to Ivy League college and she had all her, all the things um, together. Um, But she had had three previous psychiatric hospitalizations for suicide, suicide attempts that would have never come out if I hadn't um, just gone through and had a conversation with her like I do all my patients. And so it was really a reality check for me um, that um, no, matter, no matter who we're working with, um, that we really want to make sure that we're continuing to be keyed in and um, talking to all of our patients about 
um, about their behaviors and about risk. Um, no matter what we may, what we think are, um, we see sort of on, on the outside. Great. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> I don't, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's good late for me. <laughs> late in our third one today. Well, and I, I think it, it's, yeah, it's interesting that you say, you know, you can't tell if someone's vulnerable and to really approach every, everyone with the same set of questions. And, and we've been talking with a couple of doctors about LGBTQ health and, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's and and they too <laughs> said <laughs> my approaches don't change based on how a person identifies. Everyone, you know, I approach the everyone the same, and so it's interesting that you know maybe this is a bias that Stephanie and I have that you might change the way you talk, you know, pending on someone's background, but really when it comes to patient centered care, that's maybe just not appropriate, and really it is just about approaching everybody without any assumptions and without making those judgments ahead of time. Yeah. And, and so you start with these same questions that you would ask anybody. And so I think it's also probably been a really great learning experience for Stephanie and I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you said it really well in terms of um, those are assumptions, right? And again, that's us leading with our assumptions. Um, and we, we don't really know the full picture. We do know that young people have different experiences in life. And we do know that those different experiences um, can affect their medical health in different ways, can affect their social health in different ways, but we don't know all of their experiences. And so I think that that, again, that example from the school-based health center really showed me that I don't know everything this young person is going through. And so now this person, this young person is as vulnerable as some of my other youth who on the outside we see as vulnerable. And so we don't, so there we have, um, we're, we're very complex people. Um, and so I, th yeah, <laughs> here it is again. <laughs> yeah. Gotta wake up. Yeah. Well right. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, yeah, and that's the fire truck. It's like the most active, it's like the most active fire station in the city. Like, oh my gosh, it's like two blocks from our house. <laughs> okay. I think we're good. Okay. Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <You're not laughs> <having it. laughs> right. <laughs> Okay. 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 So, so it is important for us to um, to see all of our patients as individuals, and it is in line with trauma informed care. Trauma informed care really takes into account that all people have experienced some um, some history or some experiences in their lives that have that can impact or have maybe negatively impacted. Um, their their experience and their health. Um, and so we, we really should be leading with that, with all patients. Yes. Great. So um, kind of switching topics a bit here. So um, I think I don't, or yeah, in both of um, Nicole and, and my dissertation work, 
we have um, sort of experienced on either the provider or the patient level, um, this issue of the poor sexual health education that adolescents receive in this country. Um, and that the provider is sometimes needing to provide that sexual education in a short office visit. So how do you navigate this issue and how do you recommend um, other providers navigate this issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really believe as um, healthcare providers, we must keep advocating for comprehensive sexual education in schools. It really is a great place for young people to learn about the bodies and about their options and about their health, be able to talk to other young people about health. Um, we know that peer peer interactions are very influential and can be very positive around um, health and health decision making. And so it's really it's and so the school environment um, is just a very important um, and very strong influential place where young people can receive uh, sexual education. Uh, and I try to bring that education into my office visits in my clinic. Um, sometimes clinic gets busy and I can't talk about um, sexual health um, in lengthy ways in every visit, but I do try and, um, and to touch on it with most, most visits. Lots of my conversations really center around um, sexual empowerment um, and uh, sexual agency. I feel like we have lots of discussions with young people about condoms, about birth control, and about sex, and about um, STDs, so the, the, the actions that come along with sex. And we have fewer discussions with young people about sexual decision-making, about sexual empowerment, about um, sexual agency, about sexual health, about sexual identity, and all the things that they we really, it's really important to focus on so that we can make really healthy decisions about sex and about birth control and, and to prevent STIs. And so I try and have those conversations. And I always really remind young people that because you decide to have sex today, doesn't mean you have to ha decide to have sex tomorrow. You get to decide every single time. Um, so remember, remember that when you're in having interactions with, um, with people who you may be thinking about having sex with, that it really should be a choice every time you have sex. I think that's a great point to make too. Uh, in my research, I found that a lot of when women would talk about the education that they received as young adults or adolescents, it was very fear-based and that parents would talk about it out of fear because something was happening in their community or to someone they know. And so, like you said, they get the wear a condom, use birth control, prevent pregnancy. But what's really lost is, like what you said, the sexual empowerment agency. And and I think that's terrific that you incorporate that mm -hmm. into your practice. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, Do you? Oh, ahead. sorry. Yeah. And I think that... Um, I think that it can be surprising to some young people to have those discussions because I, and, and I'm probably putting word, words in their mouth, in their mouths around this, but it feels like um, sometimes those conversations are like what adults talk about. 
you know, <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. but when we we know that it's a normal part of adolescence to um, be curious about sex and curious about sexuality and start developing your sexuality. And so that's really where those conversations lie. But for some reason, we have taken those conversations away and talk about them when they become when in adulthood. But young people and this, so the conversation we're having with young people now is about preventing things mm-hmm. that happen with sex. Um, and so I'm just trying to kind of re- reconnect. Um, this reconnect is those beyond this podcast, but I would love to just hear your take on like what the perfect education program would look like. <laughs> I feel oh, like yeah, I've done those your too. perspective would just be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I just did a um yeah this is off topic but I won my um my last research project with CSEC girls was um creating a sexual health education curriculum that um focused on sexual empowerment as a way of sort of healing oh, from sexual trauma wow. so yeah yeah. Can I like read about that somewhere? Yeah, that or can I fun. schedule another phone call with you? Or yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll bring it up tomorrow. Actually, I'll bring it up tomorrow when we talk about it. Okay. Because I think we're going to be talking okay, about sexual health and CSEC, and oh. yeah, yeah. So I'll bring it up then. Yeah. Okay. So um, I did want to kind of touch or ask a quick question about the sexual teaching, sexual empowerment. Um, can you sort of unpack that a little bit, what that means? And one of the um, one of the reasons I asked that is we had the pleasure of having Tony Bond Leonard on one of our podcast episodes um, who gave, you know, this grassroots perspective of reproductive justice movement. And she talked about sort of um, some issues that she had growing up with getting pregnant um, and no one had really ever talked to her before about her body and her cycle and how, you know, pregnancy occurs and what her cervix looked like and um, how to track your cycles. Is that something that um, you talk about in your visits with your patients or do you feel like that most of them already know these things? Um, Yeah. So I guess, so I can answer, um, I guess with talking about sexual health, Um, I, so I have, I've taught sexual health in several, um, settings. Um, I've taught it, um, to young people who have had experiences with sexual exploitation, um, as part of a health class in their, at their youth group. And we had more sort of open discussions about what, what, what that concept of sexual health even means. Um, I've talked about it in um, uh, with the same group of young people, young people who've been ex- experienced sexual trauma, specifically um, sexual exploitation, in a more, in a very structured curriculum. Um, and when I say structure, we had four sessions um, that were uh, around sexual health. And the first session was, "What is sexual health? Like, what does that concept even mean?" And that's where I started, just by putting the question out to the young people to see what they think. And again, the young people are very smart and intuitive um, because they already knew, <laughs> you know, like the difference between sex and sexual health. They would say, oh, sexual health, that's like the, the mind, the mind being also 
thinking about um, sexuality and thinking about how to keep yourself healthy um, with sex. That means having good relationships. Um, that means having sex when you want to, and they would know the difference between sex and sexuality. Oh, well, sex, that's just really focusing on the physical aspect. And that's, um, it doesn't really get into like how you feel and your emotions. And so they were, they were already saying all the things that were in line with what, what we know is sexual health and as a, a broad, a broad concept. Um, I want to pause there because I think I forgot the second, the other part of your question. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was kind of confused by the question too. Questions in one. So I, uh, I was like, oh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so I'm just you know coming up with these in my head and rolling. I'm rolling with it here. Um. So okay. So you talked about sexual health. So um. So how do you teach oh, do you- teens about uh empower sexual yes. empowerment mm-hmm. okay and agency. okay got it um and as part of this um curriculum um one of our next session was sexual empowerment what does that mean um and so what we did and uh and so i didn't do this just sort of off the cuff and just like kind of what my concepts were <laughs> there's a really um um there are several very good curriculum very beautiful curriculum um, that are specifically designed um, toward uh, adolescents and sexual health. One is the It's All One curriculum, which is a se- teaching sexual health from a human rights perspective. Um, it's for, by the Population Family Health Council. It's an amazing curriculum. I used um, a, a lot of their work as sort of references and guides for my curriculum. And the second is from Physicians for Rep- Reproductive Health, um, the adolescent um, sexual and reproductive health curriculum, of which I am one of the faculty members. Um, and it's a repository of great online um, slide decks around um, the full breadth of sexual health uh, topics, including videos. And so there are, there's lots of great didactic information um, from from those two uh, agencies, uh, so with using sort of that ba- as a background for my curriculum, uh, again opening it up for young people and asking and trying to really unpack what is empowerment. So let's just talk about empowerment. And again, young people are very smart, so they know they already knew what empowerment was. They knew that that was um, you being independent and you owning your body and you deciding. And it's okay. So then, what is sexual empowerment? So that's you being independent in your sexuality and you deciding about, about your sexuality. And so we really kind of, we really broke it down in those ways and had discussions. And we also did some role playing where we had scenarios that young people that would be um, not necessarily a bad scenario, not necessarily a good scenario, but maybe just a tricky situation. And so what are some of the things that are problematic with the situation? What are some of the things that feel good about the situation and how would we, what do we, would we want to do to have a, a better outcome for ourselves, knowing that it could be different for everyone? Because again, sexual empowerment is an, also an individual thing. Um, I had a student working with me um, from UC Berkeley. I'm also a faculty in the medical school at UC Berkeley. And so one, one of my medical students um, decided, we decided to take 
our curriculum a step further and really try to integrate these concepts around sexual empowerment. Um, and she created a photo voice project that girls participated in specifically around sexual health. And so they uh, would go out, they had themes and they would go out and they would take photos um, and relate them back to sexual health. And so photo voices are really a way to be able to really integrate um, concepts that can can seem more abstract. Uh, And, and that was, that was really powerful um, and uh, a really beautiful experience for the young people. Well, and I think what's interesting about what a, a lot of the, or what's interesting and kind of a theme of many of your answers, and I found this too when I taught sex ed to a youth group, is that teens and adolescents, it's like we don't give them enough credit. And I remember being in those situations where we would be talking about mm-hmm. just what you were talking about, and I was blown away by their responses and the the, the insights they mm-hmm. had. And yeah. I was like, wow. I really don't give y'all enough credit. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, they they yeah, yeah, know absolutely. more than, I mean, for me, like they knew more than I thought they would. They're more insightful than I thought they, I mean, maybe it's just because at that age, I didn't think I was that insightful <laughs> or that perceptive. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that, you know, we just, maybe we just don't give them enough credit. <laughs> You know, I, I totally agree with you. I think that we don't. I mean, I, and I, and I think of myself as, as, as an adult who's pretty tuned in with youth. And I realized that I didn't give my young people an, um, enough credit. We, um, we actually did focus groups before we put together the curriculum because we wanted to have the youth informed. We wanted the curriculum to be youth informed. And so we wanted to talk to them about what they wanted to learn about and their learning styles. And then we took that information and, um, revise our curriculum. And we found in the context of the focus groups that they already knew all the information <laughs> we were going to be presenting. <laughs> so, so we're like, okay, let's see, going back to the drawing board. But what, what came out of the focus groups was um, the theme around sexual health and sexual empowerment and sexual concepts and sexual decision-making. And that those are the things that need to be teased out more, not how do you keep stay safe from having an, an STD or mm-hmm. how do you not become pregnant? They know that already. Um, it's the, the, um, the higher level um, conversations or the, the conversations that should be preceding all of that, that, that um, either hadn't happened or there were just... Um, uh, there was just some sort of difficulty around uh, discussing discussing those concepts. Um, the other thing that came out of our focus groups is that um, young people have the tools to really teach each other. And so how can we make space to uh, support the empowerment of, a, of the peer uh, learning and the peer education piece? And so that's, that's something that working, we're working on now is um, really supporting uh, young people to then teach this curriculum to their peers, and um, and looking at how that then affects the uh, the sexual agency and the um, the concept of that of the young person's sexual health. The person's actually teaching the curriculum. Yeah, I love this. I want to learn all about your curriculum. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, Stephanie, yeah, I feel really like, fun. I mean, I know we got about 10 minutes left, but I really think the, we should definitely ask about mm-hmm. the, um, confidentiality the or like thing. laws around teens. I think that's really oh, important yeah. to make sure we hit. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the. Do you want to um, let let's do the, the minor the one, one first, no. just so we make sure we've got time for that. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fine. So <laughs> we um, brought up Dr. Carrie Pierce already in this episode, <laughs> but talking about her episode again, um, she described a situation where a teen wanted an IUD. But the staff countered her in saying she didn't have her mother's permission. So can you give our audience um, who may not always see adolescents a brief overview of the laws regarding confidentiality and consent with teens? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking this question and because I think it's so important for um, for us to, to understand as adults um, for how minors can access services and for which services. Um, So it really may come as a surprise um, to some people that depending on what state you live in, adolescents may have drastically different levels of access to necessary health care, like contraceptive care, abortion care, pregnancy care. Um, We do know that there are 21 states currently, and along with the District of Columbia, that ex- uh, explicitly allow all minors to access and consent to all contracept- contraceptive services. Um, so when I say minor, I mean the, a person under the age of 18. Um, if you are um, trying to figure out what your state allows, um, the ACLU is a really good, great place to look uh, for that. You can also Google minor consent laws, Illinois. So just where, where you live and, uh, find information there. But if you want to find, um, so the most accurate information, you can look at the ACLU or the national center for youth law. Um, those, those will give you the most up-to-date and accurate information on state, um, uh, minor consent laws. So, Again, there are different laws. We know that these laws are not evidence-based in any way. They have no bearing on whether a young person can safely access care. Um, it really, it, it really just depends on um, sort of what's happening in most in like state governments um, that are. So, do you know if if I'm a minor and I want to be seen because I want to be on birth control? Do you know, how do they initiate that appointment? Is that something that a parent would still have to make or can they call themselves or how, how does that work? Yeah. If they are living within the, one of those 21 States and including the district district of Columbia. So if we're counting the district of DC, we would say 22. So if they are in any of those 22 States, they can access medical uh, confidential medical services on their own without a parent. And so confidential services include um, anything related to pregnancy, pregnancy testing, um, uh, abortion, STD testing, STD treatment, uh, birth control, um, and acquisition of birth control. And so those are the, sort of the, the, the basic um, 
minor um, so uh, confidential that, services. I'm, oh, go ahead. So that would mean. No, fin- finish what you're going to say. No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, so as far as how they would find a um, provider, what I would, because because access is different, really depending on the state where you live, some there are, there's access to more freestanding adolescent services in some states and there are others, but where, what there are in most states is a Planned Parenthood. And so if a young person doesn't know of any other place where they can go to access confidential reproductive health care services, they can always call their local Planned Parenthood. And if they're the, the nearest Planned Parenthood is 50 miles from where they live, that Planned Parenthood will likely know what services they can access that they're so closer to So then kind of piggybacking that. on that, and I know that a lot of women that I talked to when they were minors, they, they'd go to Planned Parenthood or nothing at all because if they went to, say, their local medical clinic, then the insurance, you know, the, it would bill their insurance and then their parents would get this bill for the insurance and they would know that their kid had received care or had received birth control. So how does... How do teens navigate that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really tricky. And those laws are changing. Actually, the law uh, for Medicaid did change. It changed about three years ago where um, Medicaid was no longer allowed to list um, the services, confidential services that uh, a minor had received under their parents' plan. So they were not allowed to mail those things home anymore. Again, that's the law, but how things show up in practice are different. And so now some um, private insurances have also um, ascribed to that same, those same laws. In California, we have the, the same laws um, for private insurances as well. It can be very, sometimes it can be very, a very bulky system to navigate. Um, where you actually have to opt out of that provision um, rather than opt in. And so um, it could be by the time you find out that this is something you have access to, the letter has already gone out. So again, that's the law, how it actually shows up in practice. Um, Sometimes it's not always um, the most useful for the young person. So when it comes to different forms, so say... um parents are on board. Is there any concern then if the parents like, yep, you know, I'm cool with whatever they do in regards to, okay, no, that's not how I want to say that. I have to think about this. Um, <laughs> trying to get out with like, they're like, the, well, like the kids deciding, you know, like with, with the mom, you know, they were like, oh, mom doesn't, ha-. I, and you probably said that they don't need consent. They can just do it. Um, you know, well, let's just scratch that. Okay. Yep. Moving on. Stephanie. You sure? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> like trying to think and my baby is just like so. stepping on things and getting weird. So I'm struggling to like focus. <laughs> <laughs> so 
スタピンもいます。<笑>少し。もうちょっと、いや、I think, yeah. Do you just want me to ask the last one, the communication tips? Okay. Okay. So we always like to end our interviews by asking a final question, and that is what communication tips that you haven't already mentioned do you have for providers who、um, provide care to adolescents?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I would say、um, I can't underscore enough the importance of remaining open and engaging young people in dialogue. Around their health,、uh, and really refraining from making decisions for them, for blurting out <laughs> what we think is the right thing.、Um, just remembering to take a little, little more time to、um, be open and engaging.、Um, remembering that independence is a part of adolescence, and so this is exactly where they're supposed to be in their stage of development. And so, when a young person、um, doesn't want to follow your advice, or maybe, maybe acts like they're not listening, or you say something, they do the opposite thing, it really is a part of where they are developmentally.、Um, and it's our role as providers to be facilitators in, of their decisions.、Um, we don't have to always agree with their decisions,、um, but Helping them to begin to think critically about、um, their choices and、um, connecting、um, their choices today in the exam room with their goals that they've expressed、um, for their lives in the future、um, is, can be very powerful for a young person.、Um, and, um, and that means we have done our job as providers. Yes. Well, Dr. Mays,、uh, we would both like、awesome. to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? Just remember youth agency, youth <laughs> choice, and youth empowerment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. All right, so I'm going to hit stop recording, but don't close your browser、okay. just yet.